Okay, this is our fourth message in our study of corporate or gathered worship. We've learned about the joy and necessity of it, the purpose of it, the presence of God in it, and now this morning, the focus of it. This is absolutely essential. You just cannot overstate the importance of this foundation that we're laying uh, with these messages right now. So what is our focus in gathered worship? Well, a few weeks ago, I really shocked you because we asked the question, who gathers for worship? And my answer was worshipers. Um, And I'm joking, of course, about shocking you because it seems so obvious. But when we dug into that, it's actually really, really important. Well, something similar this morning. Guess what I'm going to say about the focus of gathered worship. It's a shocking answer. The focus of gathered worship is God. That seems so obvious, and yet it is so essential, and it's really very, very fascinating to explore and learn about. The focus of gathered worship is God. Now, first, first of all, very briefly, four focuses that aren't right, some of which we'll come back and talk about later in this series. First of all, the focus of gathered worship can't be man. Man-centered worship is the exact opposite of true worship. So we'll talk about that later. Secondly, the focus of our worship can't be worship. If we gather just seeking a worship experience, we are worshiping worship instead of God. Thirdly, the focus of our worship can't be a faulty view of God. The human heart tends to try to imagine what we wish God would be like to let us do what we want to do. And if we worship that God, he doesn't exist. So that's not worship. And then fourthly, the focus of our worship can't be a weak or partial view of God. For example, I recently read an article about the trend in Christian music to talk less and less about God as our Savior and more and more about God as our helper. Now, it is right to praise God for being our helper and to thank God for his help. But if we were to worship God as our helper without any mention of the wages of sin or the blood of Christ or the gospel itself, we have a very partial view of God. So those are just brief examples of worship with a wrong focus. And the answer to all of those problems is Trinitarian worship, which is what we're going to learn about this morning. So on your handout, God is the focus of gathered worship, but more specifically, biblical worship is unto God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. It is focused on one God in three persons, and we're going to utilize the book of Philippians to demonstrate this this morning. So in your Bible, Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes, now watch these phrases, through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And when he says God there at the end of verse 11, he's referring to God the Father, as you see back in verse 2. So verse 11 says that spiritual growth comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That combination is found 
all over the New Testament. So, for example, turn over to Philippians 4 for just a moment. Philippians 4, verses 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in or by Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So there you have it again. On your handout, you can see Romans 16, verse 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. See, to God through Jesus. Colossians 3.17 And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So this is a very consistent pattern to God through Jesus. And then we'll see the role of the Spirit uh, a bit later in Philippians. So, first of all, what does it mean that biblical worship is unto God the Father? Matt Merker gives a, a pretty good summary He writes, God the Father foreknows and predestines a people for himself on the basis of his own loving will. That's Ephesians chapter 1. He calls sinners to trust him. He justifies the guilty and he transforms us from idolaters into worshipers. That's good. The one essential element that's missing there is that the Father sent the Son. So, the Bible describes God the Father as the one who is planning salvation according to his will. Ephesians 1 describes what God has done to bless us in Christ, as we just sang. And it says that this was according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. When Jesus was on earth, he said he came to do the will of the Father and to do the works of his Father and to bring the words of his Father. So we see God the Father behind everything accomplishing his will, his purpose, which is to restore sinful worshipers to himself for his eternal glory and for our eternal good. And so as the end of Romans chapter 11 says, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So that's why we say biblical gathered worship is unto God the Father. But since the Father sent the Son to accomplish those purposes, He is glorified through Jesus Christ. So number two, biblical worship is through God the Son. If you go back to Philippians 1, that's the phrase we saw in Philippians 1.11. He's talking about spiritual growth here, but he says it comes through Jesus Christ. And if we continue in Philippians chapter 11, we see a remarkable Christ-centeredness, like the end of verse 13. My imprisonment is for whom? Christ. Verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. So you see there that the central message that needs to be proclaimed is Christ. Look down at verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
If we go ahead to Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. Philippians 2, 7. Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look at Philippians 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, on faith in Christ. Go to Philippians chapter 4. We read this just a second ago, but we were looking for the emphasis on the Father. Now look at the emphasis on through Jesus. Philippians 4.19 And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in or by Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. So, we see that God the Father is behind it all, carrying out His perfect and loving will for His glory. And then we see that He does that through Jesus Christ, who is the rightful focus of the Christian life. It is right to say, for me, to live is Christ. He is the rightful focus. I appreciate the simple phrase. John Piper has used it in several different books and, and things. It's the phrase, all that God is for us in Jesus. And that is a great wording. All that God is for us in Jesus. That comes right here from Philippians 4, 19 and 20. Now, we should back up a step here, though, because it's not just that God saves us through Jesus, but it's also that God revealed himself through Jesus. In John chapter 14, we read that Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father. Isn't that an interesting question, request? Show us the Father like Philip wanted some spiritual insight into God the Father. And Jesus responded with, to me at least, startling firmness. Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Wow. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus said in Matthew 11.27, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 refers to the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God the Father reveals himself through Jesus, and then he accomplishes salvation through Jesus, the one whom he anointed, the Messiah, to be the Savior. So worship is impossible without Jesus. We couldn't worship if Jesus had not lived a perfect life. 
if He hadn't died on the cross bearing our sins, if He wasn't the perfect priest and perfect sacrifice, if He hadn't split the veil to open access to God, if He hadn't risen, if He was not right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the one mediator between God and man ever living to make intercession for us. Without Jesus, we could not worship. As David Peterson writes, Christ fulfills and replaces the temple and the whole method of approach to God associated with it. That's why Jesus can say in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Do you hear that exact same language? To the Father through Jesus. Biblical worship is through God the Son. It is Christ-centered. Colossians 3, verse 17, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So that verse is another one of those verses that we take and we rightfully apply it broadly to our Christian life. Do everything in your Christian life in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. And that's true. In context, in Colossians 3, he's talking about the gathered church. And what he's saying is, everything you do together as a gathered church, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So I appreciate this wording from Tom Nettles. True worship finds its energy and beauty in its expression of the delight that the Father has in the Son. Okay, so pause there. The Father delights in the Son. And so when we gather and delight in the Son, we bring joy and glory to the Father. But then he continues, and in the central place that the Father has given the Son in his restoration of us to true praise. God sent the Son to seek and to save idolaters and make them true worshipers. So biblical gathered worship is Christ-centered. It is unto God the Father through God the Son. Now, what about the Spirit then? Because we say here it is by God the Spirit. So let me show you four key references to the Spirit in Philippians. And first of all, is just a little reminder that Jesus has given us the Spirit as our helper in Philippians 1, verse 19. Except that's not the right verse. And my contacts are going to make it fun to find the right verse. All right, which verse... Which verse says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Which verse in chapter 1 is that? I went from Philippians 4 right into Colossians 1. All right, Philippians 1.19. And the whole contact thing was a diversion. That was my fault. Not the contact's fault. Okay, Philippians 1.19. Paul says, I know that through your prayers and 
the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. The help of the Spirit. That's exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? He promised his disciples, I will send the helper to you, John 16, 7. So, first of all, we expect that in some way the Spirit will help us worship. And there are a lot of ways. I'll come back to that in a minute. But let's keep going. Now, verse 27 in Philippians 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See that there? You are standing firm in one spirit. And the word spirit there could refer to our spirit or God's spirit, and both are true. As a church family, our spirits should be knit together, and that is possible because we all have God's one spirit in us. Our spirits are knit together by the one spirit of God when we gather for worship. We see that same thing if you go right down to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So you can see that what he's saying there is, since these things are true, since you have encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit, therefore have the same love, be of the same mind, and so forth. So that phrase, participation in the Spirit, your translation might use the word fellowship because that's the, that's the word koinonia. And you, we can remember, you have this there on your handout, fellowship is sharing with one another because of what we share in together. We learned this all the way back in, in our beginning of our study in Acts. Fellowship is sharing with one another because of what we share in together. We share, as a church family, we share our lives with one another. We share our time. We share our spiritual gifts. We, we share our voices when we sing. We share our wisdom. We share our prayers. We share our, our compassion, our weeping, our, our rejoicing. That's all fellowship. And the reason why this diverse group of people would share their lives with one another like that isn't because we decided this group of people are my favorite people in the world because of your personality or your cooking skills or your sports team's loyalties or whatever. I, I chose you to be my best buddies. That's not it at all, right? It's because of what you and I share in together, which is Christ by the one Spirit of God. And because we share in Christ and share in the same Spirit together, now we want to share our lives with one another, with the body of Christ. This fits so well together with what we've learned previously that because we possess the Spirit, then in the act of gathering, we are the temple of God. The Spirit brings us together into this worshiping people, this very temple of God. The Spirit is like the unifying glue that sticks us together as a church family. That's what Philippians 2 verse 1 means when it says, if you have any 
participation in the Spirit. If you together share in the Spirit, you then share your lives with each other in this unified church family. Okay, so so we've got two key ideas about the Spirit and worship so far. First is the Spirit's going to help us in our worship. More on that in a second. The second is the Spirit is this glue that binds us together as a family in worship and even makes us into the temple of God as the worshiping community. Now, look at Philippians chapter 3. And here Paul is going to warn about dangerous teachers, probably Judaizers in the church. Chapter 3, verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about circumcision. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, there are some complicated things there, but don't miss what's clear in uh, verse 3. We worship by the Spirit of God. So there's the exact words that we're using in our In our definition this morning, biblical worship is unto God the Father, through God the Son, and it is by God the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? There was a problem in Philippi that seems to have been similar to the problem in Galatia, and that is that there were Jewish teachers who were trying to get the new Christians to become as Jewish as possible, starting with circumcision. They were probably teaching, like in Galatia, that the key to really flourishing in the Christian life is to learn to live like a Jew. So Paul says in verse 3, we are the circumcision. What he's saying is the true people of God are not marked by physical circumcision. Instead, the true people of God, the true circumcision, are marked by Worship by the Spirit of God, glorying in Christ Jesus, and putting no confidence in the flesh. The true people of God can be Jew or Gentile. They can be circumcised or uncircumcised if they worship by the Spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So this means partly that the true worship of the true people of God is not driven by Jewishness, whether in circumcision or feasts or diets. In verses 4 through 6, Paul says, look, if you want to talk about those things, I can outdo anybody on those things. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. True worship is never about how impressive I can be or how much I can bring to the table. It's not about the beauty of my voice. It's not about the size of the check I can put in the offering. True worship glories in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in in the flesh. 
We are great sinners with an amazing Savior. And so we come in worship and we say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Though in his grace, God wants us to bring our thanks and bring our praise and bring our joy and bring our gratitude to him. So true worship puts no confidence in the flesh. It glories in Christ. And then back to verse three, it is by the spirit of God. Back in John four, we learned that to worship in spirit means to worship as a person who has been made alive by the spirit. Your spirit is alive and the spirit of God is in you. And so here in Philippians, that same thing is true. Because, see, circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant, the sign of being a covenant participant, a member of the Old Covenant. But the sign of the New Covenant is a new heart. On your notes, look at Romans 2.29. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. There it is. The people who are the true circumcision today are the people who have been given new spiritual life in their heart by the Spirit of God. The Spirit cuts away the old dead self and makes us spiritually alive. John 6, 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. So true worship is not depending on all of this external stuff. True worship comes from a heart made alive by the Spirit. A heart that has the Spirit of God right there in it. Okay, so... back up for a second. We're learning what it means to worship by the Spirit. We just learned that it means to worship from a born-again heart made alive by the Spirit, with the Spirit living in you. We've learned earlier that to worship by the Spirit means that when we gather for worship, there's an essential unity that comes from the Spirit. And then at the very beginning of this section, we mentioned from Philippians 1 that the Spirit is our helper who surely helps us in our worship. Now, That part about the Spirit helping us in our worship isn't explained in Philippians, but if we had time, we could go to many other parts of the New Testament and see so many ways in which the Spirit helps us in our gathered worship. For example, he illuminates the Word, opening our eyes to see spiritual truths. He gifts us with spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, so that every way we build each other up as a church body comes from the Spirit. John 16, he convicts of sin. Romans 8, He prays for us. And also, you see in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8 and in 1 Corinthians 12 that that the Spirit like stirs up our hearts for worship or draws worship out of our hearts. Because in Romans 8 and Galatians 4, it is by the Spirit that we say, Abba, Father. Or in 1 Corinthians 12, it is by the Spirit that we say, Jesus is Lord. And so in some sense, the Spirit brings out of our hearts these confessions of faith and, and, of, and of hope in, in Christ and in the Father. So the Spirit illuminates the Word, gifts us with spiritual gifts, convicts us of sin, prays for us, stirs up our hearts for worship, and ultimately, the Spirit helps us in worship by pointing us to Jesus. We've already learned that Jesus is the centerpiece. He's the focal point of worship. And it's, it's no surprise to find that the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. He testifies about Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. You can see that in John 15 and John 16. The Spirit is always pointing our attention back to Christ. Okay, so in all of those ways and more, the Spirit helps our worship. 
Okay, so we've seen now what it means to worship by the Spirit of God, right? It means to worship from a heart made alive by the Spirit of God. It means to worship with the gathered church as the temple of God by the Spirit brought together by Him. And it means to worship with the Spirit's help in all of these different ways in which the Spirit helps us. So the focus of gathered worship is God. Biblical worship is unto God the Father, through God the Son, and by God the Spirit. So which one of the three could we take away and have biblical worship? After we've talked about those three parts, which one of them is just kind of optional? (laughs) No way, right? They're absolutely essential. Can you see why Trinitarian worship is essential? There is no true worship without it. It Gathered worship depends upon the Father's will and plans, the Son's redemptive life and death, and the Spirit's presence and enabling. Now, that doesn't mean that we worship Father, Son, and Spirit identically in every service because as we've seen they do have different roles in in redemption and so we we worship the father by turning from our idolatry by trusting his will his purposes his sovereignty by thanking and praising him for planning and sending salvation we worship the son by focusing on him christ-centered worship focusing on his redemptive work acknowledging that we could never worship without him seeking to grow then to be like him. We worship the Spirit by living in humble dependence upon him to enable our worship and then praising him when he does. Brian Chappell talks about the, the services we have when we gather, and he, and he writes, the grace of God, the grace God provides through his Son is the thread that sews the service together. So there you have the Father and the Son, right? And so what I would add to that is that the one who does the sowing is the Spirit. So we could say the grace God provides through His Son is the thread that sews the service together by the Spirit. That is Trinitarian worship. Okay, so in conclusion, uh, I think the back of your notes, three ramifications of that. Number one, Trinitarian worship will be spirit-dependent. If, if, if worship is by the Spirit, then we will gather in a way that openly expresses our dependence upon the Spirit of God. And that is something that um, I think our church can do better um, and we need, to, we need to grow in. When we gather, we should remember the words of Jesus, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Now, not not give the Spirit as if the Spirit is not here, like we talked about last week, but give the work of the Spirit anew. When the Jews were struggling to rebuild the temple after the time of Daniel, God said to them through Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And we could say that exact same thing about true worship. It's interesting. They were trying to build a temple. And God said, not by might nor my power, but by my spirit. It was the spirit who was going to come into God's people and make them into the true temple of God on earth. And so we should say the same thing. True worship here is not by might nor by power. It is not by circumcision nor by law keeping. It is not by any earthly priesthood or even any earthly ceremonies. It is not by money or fancy facilities. It is not by self-denial or by pilgrimages. It is not by a great band or an amazing worship leader. Biblical worship is always and only by the Spirit. 
And so first of all, Trinitarian worship will be spirit-dependent. Number two, Trinitarian worship will be word-saturated. It is impossible without the Word of God. I mean, it is true that creation reveals God's eternal power and divine nature and declares the glory of God. But flowers and waterfalls don't tell you about the eternal purposes of God. And birds and butterflies don't tell you about Christ. But all of the scriptures do. Jesus said that they're all about him. And so Romans chapter 10 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, which means worship is impossible without the word. Without the Word, we wouldn't know about the sovereign purposes of the Father. We wouldn't know about the saving work of the Son. We wouldn't know about the work of the Spirit of God. And of course, the Word is the tool of the Spirit. And so gathered worship that is focused on God will be saturated with the Word, which is not just to say that gathered worship has a sermon included. It is to say every part of gathered worship should be Word-saturated. Kent Hughes says it this way, we do not meet for worship and the word. Isn't that an interesting phrase? A very common phrase. It's all a ministry of the word. God's word must infuse everything. It's not like the Bible part starts when the sermon starts. Matt Papa writes, worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. We see something magnificent through God's revelation And then we respond in adoration, our response. If the word is how we put God on display, which leads to worship and joy and mission, then we must be filling our worship gatherings with the Bible. As Lawrence Endeavor write, Christianity is fundamentally a religion of the ear, not the eye. The word of God, rather than the vision of God, stands at the center of any true experience of God, this side of heaven. Praise God, the day will come when faith will be replaced by sight. But that day is not yet here. And until then, Christian worship must be word-centered worship. And then elsewhere, Carson writes, If you wish to deepen the worship of the people of God, above all, deepen their grasp of his indescribable majesty in his person and in all his works. There is so much more to know about God than the light diet on offer in many churches. And genuine believers, when they are fed wholesome spiritual meals, soon delight all the more in God himself. God-focused worship will inevitably, inevitably be saturated with Bible. Here's a little bit of homework you might enjoy. This is me taking something I wanted to include in the service and telling you about it anyways because I don't have time to talk about it in the service. Luke, uh, no, uh, Isaiah chapter 61 with Luke chapter 4. After this sermon, you might really enjoy looking at those two things together. Luke 4, Isaiah 61. This records a time. It's fascinating. We just said that Trinitarian worship has to be word-saturated, right? Luke 4 records a time when Jesus read the Bible in a synagogue service. 
you read from Isaiah 61, and it's fascinating for many reasons, including the place where he chose to stop and what he said after he stopped. But part of the reason why I'm pointing you to it today is because it's also a fascinating Trinitarian passage. Isaiah 61, you have Father, who is called the Lord in Isaiah 61, and Spirit and Son. And the Father is the one who has the plan, and the Father is the one who wants to show favor to sinners. And he does it by anointing this servant that he's going to send. And he is going to come, enabled by the Spirit. And so then, with the will of the Father showing his favor to sinners... And, and a servant enabled by the Spirit, then the focus is on how the Son shows the favor of the Father by saving and redeeming the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, the mourning, the faint. It's a remarkable illustration of many of the things we've talked about today. And Jesus read from that passage in the synagogue at a gathered worship, we could say. So that's, it's, you might enjoy that. God-focused worship will inevitably be saturated with the Bible. Number three, finally, Trinitarian worship will be gospel tethered. Every part of the service will be connected to Christ and what Christ has done. All worship must be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, completely dependent upon his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. God the Father is glorified when sinners find Christ to be a great Savior. And the Holy Spirit convicts sinners and points them to Christ. So everything revolves around the gospel of Christ. That's why Paul could say things like, he says to the Corinthians, I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And just before that, in Philippians 1, in 1 Corinthians 1, he said, we preach Christ crucified. John chapter 12, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He was talking about the crucifixion, of course. He was talking about the means of crucifixion, the means of his death. And ever since then, those words have stood as a reminder to to all of us to preach Christ crucified. When Christ is lifted up, he draws people to himself and turns idolaters into worshipers. And so everything in true biblical worship will be tethered to the gospel. So I'll finish with this little anecdote from Kent Hughes. He tells the story of an elderly woman in a missionary Baptist church whose age was unknown, but she was very old. He says that they called her 1800. And I don't know if that means this story is from, you know, the 1800s. And so they late 1800s and they wondered if she was born in 1800 or if maybe she seemed 1800 years old. I don't know. Regardless, he says they called her 1800. But Hughes recounts that if the preacher got a little ways into his sermon and he had not yet started preaching Christ, she would say out loud, get him up, which is straight from John 12, 32. When I am lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. And after a few minutes... If Christ was still not being lifted up, she would shout it again. Get him up. And so Hughes says, if a preacher did not get him up, he was in for a long, hard day. (laughs) Everything in true biblical worship will be tethered to the gospel. I dare you try that test out on some things like Christian music 
And there is marvelous Christian music out there. I'm not trying to bash it. But if you're listening like on the radio or something, ask the question, does this get up Christ? Or does it just say, I'm a broken, messed up person and I'm just so thankful for God? That's a good message, but not with no gospel, not with no Jesus. Get him up. So Trinitarian worship will be dependent upon the Spirit. It will be word-saturated. It will be gospel-tethered. There you have it. God is the focus of gathered worship. One God in three persons, unto God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rejoicing our hearts anew this morning in who you are and all that you have done for us in Christ. Today we praise the Father, we praise the Son, and we praise the Spirit, one God in three persons. We confess our belief in those truths, and we also bring to you our gratitude for all that you are for us. We thank you for all of your purposes, your will, your sending of the Son. We thank you, Jesus, for the giving, the coming in the incarnation, the perfect life, the laying down of your life on the cross, the rising again, and the even now sitting at the right hand of the throne of God for us. And we praise you, Spirit, for helping us, for being with us, for bringing us together, for making us alive And I pray that you would continue to develop this church family, that we would learn how to worship you in ways that bring you delight, that we would learn what Christ-centered worship looks like more and more, that we would learn what spirit-dependent worship looks like, that we would learn how to bring the Father glory in all these things. We don't for a moment believe we've arrived. We'll never arrive, but we'd love to grow. We'd love to become more and more of a church family that has a focus that brings you glory. So help us continue to rejoice our hearts in all that you are for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.